on this on week's, this week's the Bet the Process podcast. Wait, what's going on? Rufus and I are both doing an intro together. On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I are reunited. for, And it feels so good. But we bring in Kevin Pelton, an NBA OG analytics mind, to talk a little NBA playoffs with us. And then Rufus and I give you guys all a homework assignment at the end of the podcast. So if you can get through all of the talk about unrelatable food, you will have a really fun homework assignment. And with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to. Another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. It's a reunion episode, Rufus. You and I haven't it talked is. in like two weeks. It's so exciting to see you. And I got to listen to your wonderful podcast with your wonderful brother, Tom, where he said you were both smarter and funnier than me, which really was a real blow to my ego. Dagger. I think that I, I can take the smarter part. The funnier part really just, it's it's tough. Well, you don't see my humor as much, Jeff. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. That's the whole point. <laughs> I think there's there's certain dynamics between people that work for humor and certain dynamics that don't. So you and I just have bad humor dynamics? Maybe. Maybe that's it. I, I think we have, we, have, we have good I, sexual dynamics, though. So that's oh good. Oh, my God. I knew you were going to go to something like that. Uh, how's your how's your week been, Rufus? What's What's been going on? What's new in the world of Rufus Peabody? It was good. I was down in Richmond for a betting group offsite work retreat thing. We played any fantastic. golf? We did. We played. We had a, a scramble. Um, it was uh, I, Tom and I were on different teams, and we. I, my team was down uh, down two. It was match play at at the turn, and and we made a bunch of long putts on the back and came back to win by two. Actually. And so that, that was, I felt like we were going to get blown out. And so it was, it, it felt very satisfying. Who was your partner? To win. Um, my partner was a guy named Craig. And then it was, was Telemachus and Tom versus Exactly. You? Yeah. Got it. So Craig, Craig and I uh, held our own. And Telemachus is very good, right? Also. He's not as good. Well, I mean, I don't know what his handicap is. He's he he plays a few times a year, I think. So oh okay, got it. But we also did, we also played, we went to Top Shot for the first time. Uh Top Golf in Richmond. Top golf. Did I say Top He's, Shot? Yeah. Oh god, not Top Shot. We went to Top Golf. And what did you think of Top Golf? It was my first Top Golf experience. We played one of the uh contests where you can do approaches where it's actually on a course. And it was really it was actually quite fun because we had get a gambling game on it. And so Although I will say that that game rewards like a bad shot a ton. So if somebody like shanked it sideways, it's like plus 500 points because they're 500 feet away. Mm, versus that like, seems... right. And so it's like the opposite of a scramble, but it was, it was a, it was a fun trip. Um, I drank some good beer, ate some good barbecue. We did a lot of planning. It was productive. Did you eat any fun. unrelatable foods? Unrelatable. 
I don't think so. What's the most unrelatable food you've okay, eaten? Okay, okay. The like... most unrelatable food I ate was pizza without cheese. That's pretty unrelatable. Oh my god. That I is don't do the, the dairy definition. Thing. You nailed the definition I know, of unrelatable. I did. How does someone nail that consistently? The definition of unrelatable. I didn't eat particularly healthy though. We had a ton of our we ate like pounds of meat. I was uh, in Hawaii. Thanks for asking. I was there for the week with my family. We went to the Olani, which is the Disney resort. Um, pro tip there is if you have kids, go, but don't stay longer than a couple days because it is, um, it's not great after a while, but it's what great island? for a while. We're on Oahu. Oahu? Yeah. I didn't get to, I guess my tilted moment is that I didn't get to play golf. There was a cool golf course there. Um, which is it's Koalina, which is like the west coast of of Oahu. Um, and um yeah, it was like we driving by this awesome golf course every day and and didn't get a chance to play it. So that was that was pretty tilting. How about you? Did you have a tilted moment? Um, well, first off, what were you, what are your water sports of choice? I'm curious. Did you surf, Jeff? Well, you know, it's hard with the kids to do things of that sort at this point i body surfed a little bit i i love to snorkel when you're when i'm in hawaii i generally like to just swim in the ocean um but again like my kids are three and six now so the six-year-old i tried to take him snorkeling he was excited to do it but then when he saw fish he kind of got scared of the fish um, which is unfortunate. And, um, and he actually listens to this podcast. So he's going to be upset when I mention this. Um, he's now one of the listeners. He, he it's always actually tells me when he's mad at me that he hates bet the process. And I tell him, I'm going to tell Rufus that he said that. And then he gets upset and he goes, don't tell Rufus, don't tell Rufus. And I, I finally <laughs> said to him, what do you think Rufus is going to do when I tell him? And he goes, I don't know. And I'm like, okay. So. Well, now you told me. Yeah. Well, We'll see if he listens to this time. He says he likes it and subscribes to it, but he doesn't necessarily listen to it, which is fine. We just need people to like and subscribe and download. Exactly. Um, right, Jeff's son. Did you have a tilted moment? You know, I think the most tilted thing was just how poor a week of sleep I had last week. And so I was, and it kind of made me a little bit frustrated at myself for not being good enough about enforcing my own sleep. I scheduled too many things what? early in the morning and didn't go to bed early and just didn't sleep very well. And it kind of was left over from the master's week where like, I mean, that was justified, but last week, not so much. When your sleep schedule gets off as you get older, it gets harder to get on. While. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think like with, if you have kids and you have this whole situation where you get them off schedule, like going to Hawaii three hours, this was the first time in my life, you know, and I've had kids, what, like six years now that I really felt it. Cause since we've been back with the kids, they have been H E L L like, and they've slept weirdly, um, and acted weirdly. Um, so it's, that's probably also another tilting moment. I have, I've had a, this Hawaii trip caused a fair amount of tilting moments. My highlight moment was watching Fitzpatrick hit that like basically walk off approach in the playoffs that that was an incredible shot see i didn't even see that at that point i had no sweat and i was i was at sort of a, a dinner with telemachus's 
wife and kids and Craig's wife and kids and, and my brother. And so I was trying to be polite and not I, I missed, watching. I missed the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I mentioned to you that I, I had a Fitzpatrick outright going into day four and it was mostly just to cover the two outrights that I'd uh, done earlier. Did you have Cantlay? That, no, that's what I had. I had Cantlay. I had. I, uh, I can't like can't like Kucha were big, and Brian Harmon and who else? Hayden. Oh, Buckley. I had I had Jimmy Walker after day two, and I took some Shoffley. Oh, really? After, yeah, I took Jimmy Walker after day two and Shoffley after day two. So Shoffley actually like had a nice little run on on day four, just enough to like make it interesting, but like not enough to really actually feel like he, he had a chance to contend. Yeah. And at least like, Cantlay was able to edge him out by one stroke. If he'd birdied 18, he would have posted like, I think a 17 under or something like that, which meant like if, if those guys basically played like one under down the stretch, I mean, he was never really in it. Let's be honest. No, he wasn't, but it was enough to like, it's you know when you have a when you have an outright of a player and you at least see him like in the top playing well, even though you know he's not going to win, somehow it feels better. I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah, I mean, I also have top X's, so can't lay that decision on fourteen to hit the ball that was wedged up against the bulkhead. I was like, that could be a huge disaster. He could have made a triple bogey. He ended up getting it up and down from there though to make a bogey. And I didn't see that. that. I saw I, I saw on social that they they posted something about that, but I didn't actually see. I mean, that. he took like 20 minutes to make the decision, of course, but it, it at that point I was I was like, okay, he's out of it. He's not going to win, but I want him to I need him to beat Shoffley. I need him to beat who else was that? Oh, he was already going to beat Morikawa, but I needed those matchups and I had needed him top 5. And so even though I didn't hit an outright, it was nice having, you know, Buckley with half of a top 5, Brian Harmon with the top 10. And uh Kucher with one third of a top 20. Nice. Kucher, yeah. Kucher was a little tilting on Sunday. He just did nothing. Do you guys have any good good uh, plays going into this week? I hate where this where are they all this week? Well, I hate I this even... event. So this is this is the team event, Jeff. Oh. So right. the first round is better ball. The second round are is also shot. Third round. Yeah, we do. It's just annoying because I have to write a whole new code and the scrapers don't work properly because it's, you know, you're scraping multiple, you know, the, the, the references are teams and yeah, it's. This it's is like when we annoying. get into that, like really interesting annoying. data structure naming conversation often yeah. that we get into. That's just fascinating. My, my point is you have to build something that's unique for just one week and that doesn't ever seem worth it to me. Okay. That I did this year, and I probably will not do it next year. Okay, let's let's welcome in our guest. Um, we're we're welcoming Kevin Pelton, who is an OG NBA analytics guy, to talk a little NBA playoffs with us, and then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side. We now welcome in Kevin Pelton to the About the Process podcast. This is this is cool because we have sort of an OG analytics guy a guy that was doing analytics before it was cool before the cool kids were doing it and actually like you were doing basketball analytics before people realized that uh three was more than two right so that was <laughs> that was sort of the real the real premise behind it but can you give us a quick little background on yourself and sort of how you got to be this basketball analytics guru 
Uh, yeah, I, I started doing this when at the very early part of my college, uh, my time in college at the University of Washington and came from, like most people, Sabermetrics and Rob Nyer was sort of an entry point for me on that to ESPN.com, Rob Nyer to Baseball Prospectus. And then as someone who also loved basketball, started asking, is there someone doing out there doing similar things uh, for basketball. And at that point, the answer was pretty much just Dean Oliver in the public sphere. Uh, and, you know, was very lucky to become friends with him. He and I both worked for the Sonics. I was primarily on the business side when he was consulting for the Sonics as kind of the first full-time statistical analyst in the NBA. And, you know, he was invaluable in, in kind of mentoring and and helping shape my career. And then John Hollinger came on the scene publicly with basketball prospectus and alleyoop.com a little bit after that. And eventually Roland Beach at 82games.com basketball reference. And, uh, you know, over this period, I, I sort of had two simultaneous careers because I was, I was writing more conventionally about the Sonics for their website uh, before the move to Oklahoma City. And then at the same time, kind of on the side, writing about the NBA as a whole using statistical an analysis and uh, eventually was kind of able to pivot over to the, that career path uh, and and start at Basketball Prospectus when that became its own website uh, back in 2007. And that led me to ESPN. And, and here we are. When you think about sort of the way that things have changed, you know, and I made the joke about three versus two and, um, you know, the, 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 the world in basketball has become very different in the sort of time that you've been involved. It, what, what has surprised you most about that or, or have things surprised you? And, you know, what do you, what do you think you would have done differently if you were, entering into the market right now as, as a, you know, as like a 23 year old kid out of college. Yeah. Sometimes people will ask me for advice and I'm like, I, I really can't help you because, you know, the beauty of it when I came in, when I did was it was really easy to stand out because almost no one else was doing it. And now I think it's much more difficult because it's a more mature field. Now there are certainly ways to get noticed and get hired by NBA teams. And obviously lots of people are doing that because one of the biggest changes is, like I said, when Dean started doing this for the Sonics in 2004, full-time, he was the first in the league doing this full-time, or at least that we knew about, you know, maybe Zarin was already working for the Boston Celtics at that point with Daryl Morey. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was a very, very small field. You could know everyone. Now every team has, you know, at probably at least four or five staffers in this may, maybe up to, you know, double digits in, in some of the larger teams cases. And it's easily easy, I think, to kind of feel discouraged sometimes because the state of the, the public conversation is still often very negative. I mean, uh, you know, the the athletic had a piece interviewing players the other day and like, what's the biggest problem with the game? And one player, he only split his vote. He only gave half of them. But one player's picked analytics is the biggest thing that's wrong with the game. And, you know, then you look at the MVP discourse and the idea that, you know, only, only people who strictly look at the numbers favored jo Nikola Jokic this year over Joel Embiid. Like, uh, I think Seth part now described it the other day as a proxy war, basically. So this is still happening and probably always will, uh, as to what surprised me. I mean, maybe not that much to the extent that just, you know, in basketball, we kind of went through the same process that baseball went through 
a few years or maybe even in some cases a few decades earlier. So kind of, you know, you knew what was coming in terms of this ramping up, uh, especially in the wake of Moneyball, which I think sparked a lot of interest in this on the basketball side. A lot of people asked that same question that I had done a few years earlier, like, hey, who's doing this for basketball after they read Moneyball? And a lot of those people turned out to be team owners. So we kind of knew that there was going to be, you know, a ramp up in this, how quickly it was going to happen maybe was the surprise. So can you tell us a little bit of like shown, is it Shoney or Shoney? Shaney. Shaney. So Shaney is your uh, invention to some degree, your, um, I would say it's kind of your main, your main thing, right? Um, can you describe your process for that? And what it is kind of what your process is for it and, um, you know, how you use it at some level. And then I think Rufus has some good follow-ups to that. Well, the original process was shamelessly ripping off Nate Silver in the Pakota projections when they first appeared in Baseball Prospectus. And uh, that's why Shaney, like uh, Pakota, is named after an 80s journeyman. In this case, uh, is a lifelong Sonics fan who, who worked for the team and uh, has their logo behind me on the wall as we're recording this podcast. I, I chose Rush Shaney, who who played for the Sonics in the 80s and who I actually knew because he, he still lives in the Seattle area and was an observer for the league for a long time. So we had a good laugh when he finally uh, discovered the the projection system and that I had named it after him. Uh, you know, so so generally how it works, similar to like I said, Pakoda is you know take kind of a a baseline level of performance for players over their past three seasons, uh, weighted by you know recency and in, in minutes played or the the relevant variable if it's you know some of the shooting categories. And then adding also a factor for regression of the mean for players who haven't played very much. And then you look at comparable players to that since 1990 and how they developed the following year, comparable players at the same age. And that's the the kind of proje- projection of you know how the player is going to develop the next year that we use. How do you choose weights on specific facets of a player? Like how much does free throw shooting matter versus usage rate versus... I don't know, effective field goal percentage. Yeah, I'll admit when I did this back in 2003, it was like very unscientific. It was more about finding something that that looked like it provided a high degree of similarity than it was necessarily what was most predictive. But the the results have been good enough that I haven't you know had reason to kind of go back and and reevaluate that at any point. Okay, um, so. I guess following up on this, like, why did you choose similarity similarity scores? And I feel like there are some, in a way, they're like the machine learning black box of analytics because you're, I, I think the downside is that there isn't as much causal inference. It's hard to say, okay, um, this skill is decaying at, at you know, rapidly at, in the mid, the player's mid thirties because of the, such and such, right? It's, it's kind of, um, putting, putting all it's looking at the entirety of a player. And so you can kind of make comparisons that way, but have you considered looking, have you looked more specifically into um, some of the causal things that sort of driving it? Yeah. I mean, again, the reason is because that's what Nate Silver did and Pakoda had such spectacular success when it first came on the scene in baseball. Uh, I, I think one thing that's happened over time is kind of NBA players have started to become more unique. So especially if you look at the star players, which are who we really care about, like almost always their sample sizes of players who are the most similar at the, at the same age uh, are small enough that it ends up kind of being an a- average aging factor that gets applied to them instead of 
the similarity scores. So that's kind of something that I don't didn't anticipate when I first started this, but I've really noticed over time has changed because of the fact that, you know, there's the, this is part of why we follow the NBA. What makes it uh, such a popular league is that stars are, are so unique and not at all like, you know, there are some comparisons for what Giannis Adetokounmpo does now. Like there's parts of Shaquille O'Neal and parts of various different players, but he's also kind of one of one in NBA history. Why do you, why do you so, think that is? Like, how is that, how is that it, it, like, uh, why would that happen? I guess is the question. That uniqueness. Yeah. Like why would there all of a sudden be more like, an, I, I hate to, I hate to say more <laughs> unique players. <because laughs> unique yes. isn't you're either unique or you're not, but like what, what, where does this uniqueness coming from? You think? Yeah, I think some of it is the evolution of the game shaped by analytics, as Rufus was saying there in the background. Like one of the things, the trends that we've seen in the past decade has been this trend towards heliocentrism, the idea that, you know, players, star players are going to be responsible for generating higher shares of the offense than ever before. So we're seeing all-time records for usage rate. And, you know, even then when you factor in assist rate and kind of the share of the offense that's being created. So that's that's something that's changed within the last decade. Uh, you know, the the fact that players aren't as tied to positional archetypes. Like I don't like the term positionless because I still think what position a player plays matters. Like Kawhi Leonard the other night played center for the Clippers. Like that's a hugely important thing. That's a totally different role than using him as a wing or as a, even as a power forward. So I don't like the term positionless, but you're not tied to positional archetypes. Like back in the day, you saw a six foot 11 guy like Giannis. You're like, well, we're going to have you posting up. You can't handle the ball. You can't, you know, it wouldn't be like he developed now where he was used as a point guard for various parts of his development and still effectively acts that way a lot of the time. So, you know, I think those are kind of the factors that have led to more distinct stars in, in recent years. Yeah. I mean, Wait. if it was positionless before Jack Sigma could have been the Giannis. Of the, <laughs> of the... What does Shaney stand for? Is it an acronym also like Pakoda? It It is horribly a backronym. Let's see if I still remember it. Cause I've not Ooh. said this in a long time. Standardized. I love yeah. that. Oh yeah, well I picked Shaney first. The other finalist was Askew over Vincent Askew, who was kind of more my era of Sonics basketball, but I could not come up with a good K. And that's part of why I went to, with Shaney. It's a standardized, comparable, heuristic, optimizing, empirical NBA evolution. Love it. I like Shaney better for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about uh the applications of Shaney, um what are the what are the real applications that you use it for and sort of do you see other applications that um you'd like to explore especially in the world where analytics is being used to do prediction much more often with betting and fit daily fantasy and those types of things. So the it's kind of evolved over time in an interesting way. Uh, you know, it, it started out as the player projections. And then the second year of base, at basketball perspectives, I was like, well, we need to do NBA team projections. So I, you know, kind of built a model that utilizes both these player projections for who's going to be on your team and then uh, a number of kind of team specific factors. Because one of the things you find out is that, you know, in baseball, you can just throw everybody's 
individual projected statistics together. And, you know, obviously there's some interaction in terms of pitching and defense and things like that, but more or less, that's your team projection in basketball. It doesn't work like that. Rules are so hugely important. And, you know, if you have two players who are elite defensive rebounders, that doesn't mean that your team is going to get like 95% of the defensive rebounds. It means they're going to, you know, trade some of those off between each other. So those are kind of the factors I had to work in. And, Ultimately, even though there were kind of some high profile successes, uh, you know, the Knicks in, in 2013, 14, this was my first full year in the first year running the projections at ESPN, they coming off a, a playoff appearance in their best season in, you know, a, a decade were projected to go 37 and 45 the next year. And this became kind of a storyline in the New York media. And then they went precisely. 37 and 45 in a remarkable and completely fortuitous coincidence. Uh, but despite that, you know, I was seeing that the results kind of weren't what I were, was hoping. And uh, I think it was also that that same season, we added real plus minus from Jeremiah Engelman to the site, which was kind of the first of what has now become the, the best in class of NBA player metrics that combine uh, box score performance along with adjusted plus minus to make predictions. And, Basically, you know, my my thought was this is outperforming what I'm doing. So I applied kind of some of the same techniques in terms of forecasting minutes and, and things like that to RPM and, and use that exclusively over Shaney for a number of years. Uh, Jeremiah then went on to go join the Dallas Mavericks and the work in the NBA. And, you know, R- R- Real Plus Minus has gone, kind of gone through an evolution at ESPN. And uh, that led me to the last couple of years, go back to Shaney. And what I've been using is basically simulating those kind of metrics that combine adjusted plus minus with box score stats by using the Shaney projections as the box score component. And now I use the uh, regularized adjusted plus minus that's on NBA shot charts.com uh, is the, the adjusted plus minus component. And those are the two factors that are going into the projections that I'm doing now at ESPN. So if you think about using Shaney, let's move into the playoffs. Now you wrote a piece about sort of projecting out the playoff series and, and, you know, which underdogs had a chance to win, et cetera. What um, differences do you see in the playoffs from sort of forecasting the regular season as you thought through how to do that? What, what were the ways that you looked at, you know, obviously we know the playoffs is different in some ways. So what are those differences um, from a process standpoint that you used? Yeah. I mean, I think it, in practice, it maybe has less to do with the playoffs difference, the difference between the playoffs and the regular season and more kind of the difference between projecting out players over a subsequent 82 game season than over this kind of shortened compressed period. And what I've found is that, you know, those, those RPM style projections or what I'm doing now have worked much better for whatever reason in the regular season than they have in the playoffs. So it's something I kind of wanted to go back to the drawing board with this year and, and see what factors would make sense. And, you know, one of, one of the things that stood out to me is I, I don't think you can entirely use just kind of a, a player-based projection. And I don't think you can, you definitely can't entirely use just how the team performed in the regular season, because we've seen, you know, the, 
the disconnect seems even larger between regular season and playoffs the last few years where we've had teams, you know, uh, win multiple series on the road and get to the conference finals each of the last two years in the Dallas Mavericks in, in 2021 and the, or excuse me, last year, Dallas Mavericks last year and Atlanta Hawks in 2021. So, you know, it's kind of highlighted that. So, you know, I wanted to combine both of those factors and, you know, see what else was predictive. I looked at playoff experience, which ultimately didn't add anything to the model once you had already had in those factors. And then the third factor that I incorporated was, you know, can we kind of get a sense of what Vegas thinks of this team, you know, their team quality and use uh, championship odds at the start of the playoffs as a proxy for that. So those, so that net rating during the regular season and then that player-based projections turned out to be the three factors that that went into the model I used this year. So essentially you you created sort of a different model for predicting the playoffs. Um, and, and that that's interesting. And that that all seems to make sense. And like Rufus will like that you regressed yeah. to the market because that always makes him happy when people are respecting the market that way. Although we had a very intense conversation about that on this podcast a, a couple of weeks back. When when you Although go back, I I, well, I I will say, I mean, you're doing it in the in part of the process rather than after, which can I think is is good but i think it can make it hard sometimes to know what the what the i guess especially if markets are moving how much it, the market is playing a part in it right yeah i mean I, I and i didn't look at it kind of over as a time series at all it was just that fixed at the start of the playoffs whatever people had thought and and that ended up you know reasonably predictive like all three of those factors kind of had similar predictive power in what i, I was, found i was going to ask if you're concerned about overfitting it for the playoffs but then I realized the playoffs is like a second regular season, <laughs> just given how long it is. Yeah. And, and one of the things I did was kind of look at, you know, basically teams that had played multiple series and then use teams that only played one series as kind of the out of sample. And, and it still worked reasonably well there. So what, what kind of macro observations do you think that you would observe from the way that you had to create the model on differences between the regular season and, and postseason. I mean, you, the macro things I think about are, you know, shortening of benches, um, like the rest quote, you know, like the, the way that rest is, or the way that a lot of these things sort of wear on, um, during time, um, coaching just effort generally, like, did, did you, did you tease out any of those from the work that you did? Yeah, I think the, the, rotation shortening which is a factor of the uh, product of the fact that you know you have a day off between every game uh, so that rest element isn't quite as important and the regular season has become much more kind of a battle of attrition in the NBA the last few years in particular this year we didn't see quite as many players being used as the year before when we had the Omicron spike during the middle of the season and you know all of a sudden like guys are being called up from the G League and playing 53 minutes that night or, or something like that uh, but still, you know, players nine through 15, nine through 12 are much more important over the course of the 82 game regular season than they are in the 16 game playoffs. So when I was doing that, that talent based part of it, it was based on my projection for what playoff rotations are going to look like, where it's a lot more minutes for the star players uh, than it is, you know, during the regular season and a lot tighter rotations. Okay. So let's go into this year. Um, do you, you know, you wrote that article, you talked about, uh, and actually like re referencing your beginning of the season article where you had the Warriors as the eighth best team in the West. 
um, you ended up being not far off, which is, which is interesting. And it was you know, reading that article. It was one of those, I feel like you were worried that your predictions weren't really passing the laugh test and had to sort of have some level of justification for that. Um, given the Warriors King series, you know, are you surprised about the results so far and how do you see that going forward, especially with this sort of news that, that, uh, that Draymond will not be playing in, in game three? So one of the things that came out of that that I talked about in that article is even with the market factor and everything else, you know, that series showed up as a toss-up, which is not what the market said about that series in particular. I think if I recall correctly, the Warriors were like 80% to win in terms of the implied odds. I I looked at this last week, so I forget. I think a little exactly. lower than that, but yeah, they were they were like close to three to one. So yeah. So massive, massive favorites, especially for a team that didn't have home court in the series. Like you almost never see uh, a favorite like that is the lower seeded team. So I definitely had it as a closer series going in than they did based on the combination of the fact that the Warriors just haven't rated as well in terms of talent uh, in, in my model and kind of similar to, I think a lot of the projections, you know, part of the reason for using uh, the, you know, the regular season team performance is to avoid kind of the situation that you had last year where 538 still had the Warriors is basically, you know, not even close to the most talented team, even going into the NBA finals. And, you know, that that was kind of something that stood out to me when you're using kind of exclusively a player-based model about where you can kind of miss some of the success that a team is having. Uh, but, you know, I both of those games were close in Sacramento. The fact that the Kings won both of them is maybe a little bit lucky from that standpoint. They're a team that has been very good in clutch situations all season. That's not usually something that translates over into the playoffs, which is you know why I'm using net rating as opposed to to record uh, in making these projections. But then, you know, so I would feel okay about things from the Warriors standpoint if they were just going back home down to nothing. Now, the fact that they're not going to have Draymond Green for game three after his suspension, that changes things pretty dramatically. I mean, you if you were recalculating the Warriors talent ratings with Anthony Lamb and, you know, some small lineups with probably a lot more GP2 playing on the inside, Gary Payton the second, uh, smaller lineups with Dante DiVincenzo, Sapi off some of those minutes. It's going to be hard for them to stop a Kings offense that has been, you know, the league's best throughout the course of the season. So suddenly, you know, this feels like a must win for the Warriors. We haven't ever seen team come back from three nothing, although if it was going to happen, a series where one team was favored to win 80 percent of the time uh, might be that case. And yeah, it definitely feels now like Sacramento is the uh, clear favorite in the series to me. It's interesting though, because you go from that line went from seven and a half to five. So, you know, while, while you would say, okay, you know, this is a big difference, you know, the Warriors are still favored significantly to win this game. Right. And ultimately if they win this game, then Draymond's back. And you would say that they have a, that line in the, in game four will be pretty high. Right. I don't think the zigzag will affect it. So, so I, again, like I agree with you from, um, from a macro anecdotal level, but like from a micro, what the numbers and market are telling us, what we would say then is that that the seven and a half points to five is not enough of an adjustment based on Draymond being out. I don't know if that's a fair fair statement or if that's something you ever look at in terms of the player's impact on the point spread. Not specifically, but yeah, it surprises me a little bit that it's not more than that. I mean, obviously, like, you know, Draymond's 
box score stats are are pretty modest at this point, but his defensive impact is still massive. This is a team that struggled to defend without him on the court all season long. And then the other aspect that, you know, I'd look at as a big factor in this is, you know, the Warriors second unit kind of started to turn things around this season when they started playing Draymond Green with those guys. Because in the past, Steve Kerr had basically tried as much as possible to keep Draymond's minutes tied with Steph Curry because those two guys play so well together, but basically kind of realized we need some sort of organizing presence on that second unit. And Draymond has to be that guy. If you don't have him, unless you're going to play Steph like 45 minutes, which has definitely not been Steve Kerr's MO over the course of his coaching career, then those minutes could get really rough against the Sacramento bench that has been pretty strong with, you know, Malik Monk making a, you know, a, a push to be on in the six man uh, of the year conversation and certainly playing at a high level, the first two games of this series. So I I'm a little surprised it didn't move more than that, I guess. Can we go okay. back to the sort of series price where you said you make it basically a toss up and the market was, what'd you say, Jeff, like minus 300. Yeah. I don't, I'll have to look, I'll have to go back and look at what it was exactly, I, but it was priced. It was, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Right. I, I'm kind of curious what is, I mean, driving that and, and clear, clearly there's, probably enough volume that we should respect the market there. Uh, and I would, I would assume the, the answer might is somewhere in between your number and the market number, but what is, I mean, what is driving that number being that, that difference? I mean, is it, and is it how much of it is perception? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, a lot of it is people saw the warriors go on this run just last year, like setting aside even the history of the, the multiple championships, you know, in the in the Kevin Durant era, like just last year, we saw a Warriors team that ended the playoffs seated third when uh, the the Memphis series on the road. Uh, I guess that was the uh, the yeah the Celtics series. They also won on the road. No, they they have home court for that series. Someone, I guess they had home court for that series, but the. The fact that they, you know, made the run that they did last season, I think is a big factor in it. And just the Warriors name brand, as opposed to a Sacramento team that has very little playoff experience, which is, even though I mentioned it, it didn't end up adding anything to the specific model I was using in general playoff. If you're looking, you know, just at whether a higher seeded team is going to win or not, playoff experience is a huge factor in the likelihood of an upset. So people are right to price that in. And, you know, just kind of this perception that the Kings were a really weak number three seed and the Warriors were arguably the best team in the Western Conference. So, you know, I think people probably were overrating the Warriors a little bit, but yeah, it definitely like made me uncomfortable to be that far off the market. Do you think there's do th- anything to the idea that maybe uh, teams like the Warriors, you know, certain players aren't giving max effort even when they are playing? So it's not just a minutes thing, but it's like, okay, we're not going to try as hard or we're going to maybe do the little Bill Belichick early season thing where we experiment, right, Jeff? But I mean, I think this is more, it's almost more like tennis where a team, not a team, sorry, where, you know, a top player like a Djokovic isn't going to be playing his best intentionally uh, in the early rounds of a grand slam because he needs to save his energy. Mm-hmm. And so do you think there could be any of that going on that, that may, that's really freaking hard to figure out statistically? Yeah. I think with Draymond in particular, like Steph is metronomic enough that I, I don't think it's a big factor for him. Like the, the issue is more his minutes being conserved over the course of the regular season, but 
you know, Draymond kind of coined this term that now we use to talk about the differences between the regular season and the playoffs, which is, you know, when he was talking about their draft pick at one point during this dynasty, the, he said, you know, are we looking for an 82 game player who's going to be very useful over the course of the regular season or a 16 game player in terms of the number of wins you need to win the championship. And, you know, I think he's one of the premier examples of this. I mean, I have, you know, looked in the past at playoff overachievers relative to regular season performance that season. And, and Draymond was near the top of that list. I don't think he was at the very top of it, but, but close to it. I think playoff Rondo was number one, if I recall correctly. I think it's interesting. That too, happy. I, I think, I think it's interesting too, though. There is a, um, there was a lot of uncertainty around the warriors. And so it was hard to price that uncertainty, meaning like, you know, you hadn't seen Andrew Wiggins in mm-hmm. some time and, and definitely, you know, it's one sample size, but his underperformance in game one, just from a shooting perspective, which you could say was like a little bit of rustiness was one of the reasons they lost, right? Like you even go down to that last shot where they got him a wide open look for three. And, you know, last year that way, the playoff Wiggins from last year, you would feel pretty damn confident he was going to make that three this year, you know, obviously with all the rust. So I think there was just a lot of uncertainty that the market Mm -hmm was pricing probably differently than what analytics would tell you um, or that analytics could even tell you in some cases. In in terms of the West, um, and, and we'll we'll try to get you out of here pretty soon, but in terms of the West, do you feel like this sort of Lakers recent performance makes them with especially the sort of uncertainty happening in that Phoenix series almost the favorite now? Or like, who would you pick in the West right now, absent of any odds, who would you pick right at this moment to win the West? Yeah. So I picked Phoenix coming into the playoffs uh, after they, you know, maintained the fourth seed and Kevin Durant was able to get some time healthy going into the playoffs. I'd say, even though they won game two last night, I'm feeling a little shakier about that because you're, you're playing game two of the first round against granted a a very deep Clippers team, but one that's playing without their second best player in Paul George. And you still needed Kevin Durant to play 44 minutes. And I think maybe the entire second half of game two of the playoffs, like what's that going to look like by the time you get to the conference finals. Now, I would say the thing that probably works the best in the favor of both the Suns and Denver, who I think would be my pick at this point, is for both of those teams, the single worst matchup that they do not want to see that they don't want any part of, I think, is the Warriors. So if the Warriors do lose to Sacramento in the first round, like that's great news for them. Uh, Obviously it does open things up for the Lakers as well on that side of the bracket, the bracket fell perfectly for them in terms of, you know, I think the two perceived strongest teams, Denver and Phoenix being on the other side. So I, I think the Lakers probably would have the best, might have the best chances of getting to the conference finals at this moment, but their their success also still feels a little fragile to me in terms of, look, we saw Anthony Davis leave the game the other day. Thankfully, it turned out to be nothing with a stinger, but they're one moment like that away from, you know, kind of being out of the mix if it's Davis or LeBron that experiences something like that. I I think Denver, to me at this point, feels like the the safest, most robust pick. Uh, Obviously, a a really dominant performance in game one, which was nice to see after they, they were so you know, kind of laissez-faire late in the regular season. They might have been an example of that team after locking up the number one seed that, you know, was playing the long game here instead of needing to uh, really exert themselves for seeding late in the season. Uh, 
so you know there, there's also the element of just kind of home court advantage is very important high seeds usually advance I, I tend to default towards that in a way that some people probably default to you know just who we've seen do it last year which is a good heuristic in its own right but maybe not as good as home court advantage all right and then in terms of the east and the overall um with milwaukee having some health questions or just Giannis questions and obviously losing the first game time do you make in philly and boston looking pretty impressive in their first two do you make the philly boston winner the likely winner of the east at this point or who would you pick to come out of the east i wouldn't say that milwaukee's situation never necessarily changes much for me i mean you know, we've seen Seth Partnow wrote about this the other day. That we've seen this kind of shooting luck loss in game one for the Bucks a shocking number of times during the Buddy era. And, you know, they always seem to come out and, and play and shoot very well in game two and are fine in the rest of the series. And I like Giannis's injury, he might miss game two, but it doesn't seem like it's a big long term concern at this point. The bigger thing is, you know, that model we talked about at the beginning, Boston came out as the best team. They had a better net rating than Milwaukee over the course of the regular season. They had the better talent rating, even though Milwaukee had a lot of injuries during the regular season. It was kind of interesting because John Hollinger of The Athletic put together a kind of similar model. He just did kind of the talent distribution part of this for his playoff preview. He had Milwaukee number one ahead of Boston, still picked the Celtics to, to win the conference finals matchup between those two teams. I So I've always been kind of on the fence between Milwaukee and Boston, Philly. I'm still a little more skeptical of, of them matchup wise. I think how good they've looked is partially a function of the fact that Brooklyn is just, is maybe a weaker six seed than even the seven and eight seeds that Boston and Milwaukee are facing because of the fact that, you know, so much of their success was before the trade deadline when they had Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Uh, I, I still have Philly a tier below, I think, those top two teams in the East, but I'm right on the fence between Milwaukee and Boston. Well, hopefully Boston will win because I'm a Celtics fan and I hold Celtics futures. Uh, <laughs> we're going to ask you one last question, and we usually ask seven questions to our guests, but we're not going to, because we I don't think you're a listener of this podcast, so you don't know Rufus and I that well, and uh, we have some very awesomely cringeworthy questions that we ask our guests. Uh, yeah. We're only going to ask you one, and that is, what is the most unrelatable food that you like? Oh, what is the most unrelatable food that I like? Huh. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I feel like I, even as someone who's obsessed with food, I tend to eat pretty like like so the I do a Seattle sports podcast with my brother and we do searches for Seattle foods and like the things we've done are you know ramen dumplings burgers fried chicken uh donuts currently so I feel like there's not a lot of unrelatable stuff in there I you're making so me I'll give you the example I haven't Ruth, had lunch yet Ruth, <laughs> this the is, reason yeah. that this question became a thing was because there was one episode where Rufus and I were talking about what we were eating during the game and uh, Rufus mentioned that he was eating smoked mussels out of a can and I was eating <laughs> so black, tr uh, black truffle potato chips. And someone on Twitter said, these are the two least relatable people in the world. Listen to what they eat. So we thought it would be always interesting to ask what is the most unrelatable food that you like, but it sounds like you might be very mainstream. So it seems like I am certainly. All right. Well, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Um, awesome to meet you via this. And hopefully uh, if we ever are at Sloan or a conference together, you'll let me take you out to some unrelatable food dinners. So 
Yeah, it's not that I don't enjoy them. So uh, that would be right. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Well, that was our interview with Kevin Pelton, which was fun and interesting. And um, I felt, Rufus, you were more engaged than I thought you'd be, which is great because it's always fun to see you engaged on a subject that you don't know a lot about, which is the NBA. Thank you, Jeff. You're right. I don't watch a lot of NBA, but I, I find the analytical sabermetric principles very interesting regardless of sport. It's It's interesting to talk to someone like that juxtaposed with sort of the new wave of sports analytics people, because, um, you know, like the, the decision to use similarity scores, I mean, I knew his answer, like based on what he had said, like he just basically was copying what Nate did with Pakoda, which isn't like a bad thing, but like, it was like, you do what is the current methods at the time, like why, you know, you don't have a lot of other things. And, you know, a lot of the earlier, I think analytics people, compared to some of the people that are entering into the world right now are, are much less sophisticated in how they look at like the methods that they have and whatnot. And you, this isn't, but I think they're much more uh, user-friendly and like, off, often right. Yeah. They're just, they're Logical. just a different class yeah. of people from a standpoint of, I would say that they're not quite as technically bent and much more like content and, you know, sports focused bent, like, you know, Hollinger or someone like that, especially in basketball, there's, there's so many interesting people that were early on in basketball and the evolution of guys like a Hollinger or a Pelton, or even a Seth part now, um, who we know well, like how they've gone from content to teams to content. Like what is the, what is that resting place for them? Um, and so it's interesting to even see like in the NBA, like he mentioned that, you know, all these teams have like these full-time guys Back in the day when 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 Kevin started, you know, it was really hard to get an NBA job for sure. Like that wasn't your path to necessarily making a living in the in the analytics world. And even the conversation that we had with Corey Jez, it kind of reminds me of that. It's it's I think what will be interesting and in, you know, having Sloan be so near and dear to my heart as a conference, what will be interesting is to see over the next 10 to 15 years what happens to the brightest analytical minds in sports? Do they end up becoming GMs or presidents? Do they end up going into sports betting? Do they end up, what, what do they do? Right? Like, I, I wonder what they will do. And I don't have a great prediction of that. Do you have a prediction of that? What you think will happen with them? Do you find that question interesting? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a prediction either though. Okay. Well then it isn't that interesting. <laughs> Did it, did anything occur to you from the NBA conversation? Like one thing that actually, as I was listening to him, really made me think a lot about was this Warriors game because the, when the line the line opened seven and a half, and at that moment, right, it was clear that the market and the odds makers maybe at that time were saying that they did not think that Draymond was going to be, um, you know, was going to be suspended. And I actually think it might've been Joey Kanish or someone that said on, on Twitter, do we, you know, do we know that Draymond's even playing game three? And he was like, I'm being completely serious when I say this. Um, and it, it turned out to be pretty astute. Whereas if you would grab that seven and a half with any kind of like, there, there was no, the market was not pricing in any Draymond suspension risk. The market reopened, I believe at five know? and a half. What's that? How do you know? I don't, 
but seven and a half seems in the discussion you all said that the two and a half point adjustment seemed low so wouldn't that imply that there was some probability of suspension being priced in at seven and a half i think the five seems high much less than the two and a half seems low okay so five right now five given what what people just saw yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know what the Clearly, is. some people had thought about it. It's just whether that was like a 5% probability well, so the, that the market so the, was effectively assigning to it or would it, you know, well, clearly so, it wasn't 50%. So I have no idea clearly on this series because I, um, when, when the war, I thought the Warriors would win this series. When the Warriors lost game one in a game that they were winning for most, a lot of the game, and then the, the, the Kings, were incredibly efficient in the second half offensively and just kind of like stormed back. But the Warriors still had a reasonable chance to win the game right at the end. They had like a pretty open look that would have been the game winning or at least game go ahead um uh basket. They were they popped uh the Kings popped minus one for game two, which made no sense to me. And I immediately grabbed the Warriors plus one. The line closed Warriors minus two and a half-ish, so three and a half points of CLV. And you would argue that from the way that game played out, that the Kings were the right side, even though Draymond got thrown out for the last eight games. eight, eight but the, the Kings pretty much won that game. So it's just interesting because Clearly, in that case, the odds makers were right with that opener much more than the market was right by moving that line two and a half, which, um, again, like... I mean, you can't say that based on having already seen how the game played out. I mean, you can't can't jump to that conclusion. You can say that, I guess they were right on this game based on the outcome, but you can say that in any game. A line move, most... It's I don't like know. All line I, moves I, are right. I hear you. Clearly. I hear you. And maybe like I miss. Maybe I'm like completely. This is think about the, the think about that Barry Horse example we talked about with the Georgia game. I don't know quantum physics or quantum mechanics or I don't right, know but the fact quantum that like, ethos and like the after, philosophy of the world and vortexes moving in ways that uncertainty can't explain. Sorry, I had yeah, to go off on a tangent. Yeah. What was the Barry Horse example? No, do you remember like Georgia TCU? And how he said that line was way off because of what we saw. And if they, they played again, having seen, having known what, that first result, what would it be, right? But again, we don't know that, though, at the time. Yeah, the game. I don't, and we just like, we don't know. Yeah, We didn't know fair. before game two. So I think fair. it's the same I guess, thing. I guess you're, you're just a big hypocrite, basically. Okay, I'm a big hypocrite. <laughs> No, I guess I look at that and I say like, okay, at worst that game was a toss up. There was no, there was like, yeah, I don't know how I have to, I have to somehow rectify this in my mind because I understand what you're saying, but for some reason I still believe what I'm saying. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, I hear you. You're right. And I don't need to understand the, the way that vortexes work in the, in the, parallel universe in the simulation that is what was that uh, HBO show though. that was all a simulation that was that show anyways um okay do you have a prediction for this week not really <laughs> i mean do you yeah this golf tournament i have no interest in 
I, I guess like just yeah. going back to this one second, isn't there line moves that you see that you look at and you're like, huh, okay. If the result goes kind of this way, I feel like I just, I was wrong on this. Like my take on this was wrong. Right. In yeah, this I'm not case, betting like, as much based on takes, but do you mean my model was wrong and how it estimated something or whatever, or there was something I was missing? Like, yeah. So you're a robot. I forgot, but my point well, is, okay, that- wait, this week you have a team event. And so there's people that could think, okay, these guys are friends. They're going to play better together. There's so that in, in basketball, you're familiar with the zigzag theory, right? I am. Yeah. And so in this example, I, and again, I think, I think the, the moral of the story, which is like the best moral of the story is like use analytics to bet on things and to measure things. And then you won't have to worry about sort of like this idea, because if your model in this game said, you know, Kings minus one and, you know, maybe there's some level of like, like zigzag or some level that you've quantified and you believe there should be some sort of zigzag amount, then the line should be minus one. And then, then what ends up happening, you don't have any ridiculous take that I'm having right now. So I'll shut up because I think you're right. I'm an idiot. See, I can admit when I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. It's a terrible take. Okay. It's no, it's okay. I'm, I'm, pro- I'm prone. Me, I'm prone to those things. Like, have, like the rest of us, just like me. Exactly. Um, just less frequently. You got no pick. You don't know outright nothing like no team that you like this week. There's, I mean, I don't think there's any value in the market on outrights at the moment. At least I wanna, there wasn't I wanna much. Take, I want to take week. Colin and Homa just because I like them. Yeah, I don't like them. See, I, I make can't the can't like group like plus three ninety two. So that I think, but, favorite. But, yeah, but which I think it makes it harder to find value elsewhere if you have one team that's. A really big favorite and also you don't have as many uh teams it's only 80 teams this week got it so what do you think about that what do you think about the pga having that designated event the week after the masters that seems stupid yeah it kind of does but at the same time the heritage has always been the week after the masters and it's does it it's usually have cool a good field it, it usually has a pretty good field not yeah. not as good as this year but it's a very unique course and i kind of like that and also it's right it's very close by and it's kind of like a vacationy place so i think a lot of times people players bring, their, bring families. their families and it's kind of a, a fun event but i think a lot of these guys were just exhausted because you had the match play before you know two weeks before the masters and the other designated events what bay hill and riviera before that but you know the funny thing is guys like patrick rogers are you know do playing that much all the time so you don't see them complaining it's you got you got to always use a, a time to bring up Patrick Rogers. Always. Um, what odds would you give me on Rory to win a major ever again? Ever? Ooh, there's uncertainty regard. Like maybe he could get hurt, right? Okay, yeah. we can go this process. I'll say I, that don't, right don't now. Don't you kind of feel like he's in right his own now, head about, right now? <laughs> yeah, he definitely is. But we could say maybe he's like. It based on his current skill in the like nine percent range, maybe per major. But if we expect that to go downhill, you know, how old is he? Thirty something. Thirty-four, yeah. maybe. I don't know. He's got. Let's assume ten straight, ten more years where he's got a chance. Let's say he's game peak. You know, ebbs and flows a little bit, but but he's averages uh even 
let's say a six percent. Thirty three. He's thirty three. Okay, so let's say we'll we'll go ten years and say average of five percent probability of winning each major for ten years. That'll cover when he declines a little bit too. So, uh, so what? 0.95 to the let's say he misses a few due, due to injury. What? So instead of forty majors, he's playing let's say only thirty six. Um, that would say his probability of winning a major would be minus five thirty three to the yes. If I think he's 5% each major for 36 majors. So you would give me, and I'm not saying you'd give me, don't worry. Well, but you're, well, plus, like, plus, the, well but that the, isn't factoring in the, the probability, the possibility of injury. I mean, what I would need is a distribution of how many majors he plays, but also how many he plays is also going to be a function too of how well he's playing. So they're kind of, I was just so doing, you would give me realistically like the yes at, Okay, let's say I wanted to, I want to bet the I thought no. you want to bet the I, no. I want to bet the no. Yeah. So I'll I'll take the no at plus what? 300 you'd give that to me at? What did I say it was 5? I mean 533 without any discounting of probably not just given the fact that I'm let's I'm forecasting him probably too high in his 40s but give me a price. Give me your price for the no. Okay, I'll give you plus. I'll definitely give you plus. I'll give you plus two fifty on the no. Plus two fifty on the no. What would you? What would I want on the yes? I'd probably take minus. Yeah, you're making take... me make a market on something I hadn't thought about though. So this is all right. Well, I, I well, could if you, if you gave me like ten minutes, I, I could actually yeah, make. Well, let, a, let's let's this make is a, a pretty fun. This is a pretty fun exercise. Let's see what for our. Those, our let's seven followers, yeah, let's seven, seven, seven listeners. listeners give give us a give us a market like on Rory to win a major in a the market. Rest of, like, like give us ever, both sides. Like, like if you were a yeah. bookie, what would you be willing to yeah. t- like lay and take? By the way, this you know, is going to be, be really wide. If that's if, it's going to be fewer than seven. By the way, because this is the end of the episode. So how many of our seven actually make it to the end of the episode? That's the question. It's a good litmus test. Yeah. Okay. So thanks guys for listening. No picks this week, but a homework assignment instead. And um, you know, we'll talk to you guys all again next week. The breakdown the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down, it seems like they don't get it. Puppet are about to end just running off a of leaded.